So good to see each of you here in the house of the Lord today. We're continuing in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians that I have titled, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. I wanted to mention uh, one of my earliest childhood memories as we get started here. Uh, it's from when we lived in Granada, so I had to have been maybe six or seven years old. And I remember watching, we had a black and white TV. Pretty much everybody had one of those back then. And uh, I was watching a movie, I don't remember the name of it. Uh, it was one of these action type you know, Arabian Nights-themed movies. And the protagonist in this movie was trying to find a blue rose. Through the whole movie, he's trying to chase down this blue rose. And finally, he, the, this great moment in the movie where he finally finds the blue rose and picks it up. And of course, on my screen, all I saw was a dark gray rose. And I remember as a child thinking, man, I sure wish I could see that blue rose. It doesn't look like much on my screen. Uh, and a similar memory from the same time period, we had a neighbor, a couple of floors down, I think, that had a color TV. And I remember the first time I saw the Cookie Monster in full color. It changed my life. You see, people thought black and white was a wonderful TV until you see the color TV. And the moment I saw that first color TV, I knew the days of black and white were counted. Surely, that's going to go away because anybody who's been exposed to this new thing is not going to want the old thing. That's kind of what Paul's talking about in today's passage. And he's comparing an old approach to life, an old covenant with God, with a new approach, a new covenant. <coughs> and Paul says once the new has showed up, there's no going back. That's what we're going to be talking about today. I've titled the message, Two Paths to Glory. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, looking at verses 7 through 18. Let's begin here in verse 7. But if the service of death, carved in letters on stones, was established in glory such that the children of Israel could not gaze intently upon Moses' face because of the glory of his face, which was being set aside, how will the service of the Spirit not be in greater glory? For if there was glory in the service of condemnation, much more does the service of righteousness abound in glory. <clears throat> For what has been glorified is not glorious compared to this glory that surpasses it. For if what is being set aside came through glory, how much more does that which remains surpass it in glory? Paul has just said in verse 6 of this chapter, uh, that the law kills, I mean the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. <clears throat> and that opens up to him this discussion that we're considering in this passage today. There is uh, a letter, a written code, a written law that kills. There is a spirit, a person 
who gives life. And that's how Paul contrasts the Old and the New Covenants. The Old Covenant at its heart has something written down. The New Covenant at its heart has a person. And, and that, that's, uh, if you reduce it simplest uh, explanation, that's kind of what it boils down to. But as I'm reading through here and as I'm studying these passages, I think I'm beginning to form a better picture of the kind of opposition Paul faced in Corinth. I've said this before. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. He was there for 18 months and God used him and those with him to start the church there and he shared life with them for a year and a half and they are now a, 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 a living, breathing congregation of Christ that is still there and now he's been serving two and a half years in the city of Ephesus and has just concluded his time there and is making his way north through Macedonia uh, eventually to get back to Corinth. So he writes writes this letter from Macedonia to them, and uh, Paul uh, has been facing in his absence people in Corinth who seem intent on discrediting Paul and undermining his status within the congregation in Corinth so that people will not uh, respect what he has to say, so that people will not listen to Paul. They, they say things like he he's, writes really powerful letters, but boy, when he's here in person, he's not much of a talker, and uh, he's, he's all a bluster and show and no substance, you know, and uh, all these things that seem to be in the background of him writing this letter. And these people also seem to be promoting a version of the gospel that is very triumphalist. Uh, Paul begins to use the word glory and the word power in his letter. But I want you to pay real close attention to how Paul uses these words. What things he attaches glory to. And uh, how he defines glory and how we access glory. And it's not the kind of glory of human merit, of good old-fashioned pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make something of yourself type glory that we have achieved this greatness. Paul doesn't do that at all in this whole letter. He constantly undermines that approach and highlights things like weakness, like feeling so absolutely overwhelmed that he despaired of living. And all these kinds of things Paul is trying to deal with, confronting these uh, opponents in Corinth who are trying to present a version of the gospel that looks an awful lot like the law of Moses. That looks an awful lot like let's do all the right things, let's be the spiritually superior people and let's achieve glory through our own merit and our own uh, keeping of God's commandments. We know from Acts 18, verses 12 through 17, we are told in, in that passage of uh, uh, an experience at the beginning of Paul's time in Corinth when he was there the first time, where the Jews gathered and brought Paul before uh, the proconsul over the whole region of Achaia, Gallio, uh, and they accused him of teaching false things about God. And Gallio says, guys, if he had committed some kind of crime, you know, robbed somebody, killed somebody, you know, then I'd get involved. But if you guys are just going to be arguing about religion, I have no interest. I'm not going to hear your case. And he dismisses the case. And the Jews are so angry that they grab Sosthenes, who was the ruler of the synagogue who had come to faith in Christ, and they beat him there in front of the proconsul. But the proconsul doesn't care. 
what results is 18 months of open opportunity to minister because the Jews who were hostile to Paul have failed in their attempt to get the Roman authorities to get him out of there. I think there must be in the church some of that element of these Jewish people or these people who are very much in love with the law, with the Ten Commandments, with the Old Covenant, and they're trying to get rid of Paul so that they can peddle a version of the gospel that is uh, somehow a hybrid between faith in Christ and keeping God's law to establish our own merit. Paul is a little bit, almost deliberately, harsh in the way he addresses this. Notice how he describes this old covenant of the law. He calls it the service of death. The service of death. Uh, What does this law of Moses give us? What does it serve up to us? And he could have used the the religiously weighted term uh, liturgies, Uh, So, you know, from which we get liturgy, you know, kind of a religious service, a ministry. But he uses the word diakonia, just a plain old service. Like that's the word you would use to describe people serving tables. So, uh, but maybe he's uh, bringing this to the realm of of not the high and religious uh, language, but just very common uh, thoughts. But it's a service. What's being served up by this old covenant? Death. This old way is carved in letters on stones. And he uses the plural there because that is exactly how God gave the Ten Commandments. Moses had two tablets of stone and God with his own finger carved into the stone the Ten Commandments. So Paul is very clearly here alluding to the Ten Commandments themselves which is the the heart, the core upon which the whole Old Testament is built. In fact, the whole Old Testament is expounding upon the Ten Commandments and the covenant of the law. And uh, it's all built around that. The prophets are covenant enforcers who try to remind people of the laws and the Ten Commandments and how they should be keeping them. Paul describes this old covenant as a covenant, yes, it was inscribed in stone tablets with the very finger of God, but all it could deliver ultimately was death. Because this law, these Ten Commandments, you don't even have to read all 613 of God's commandments in the Old Testament. You can just read the Ten, and already with the Ten, we're all in trouble. You may say, oh yeah, I managed to slip by, I I haven't, committed adultery, haven't murdered anybody yet. Have you coveted? Have you wanted what isn't yours? Have you misrepresented somebody in a conversation, you know, when the gossip got really good? We're all in trouble. You don't have to read all 613. The 10 will do to let us know that we are sinners That we do not measure up. And here's the problem with the law. The law can tell you what your problem is, but it can't do a thing to fix it. It can tell you, this is what a sinner looks like. Guess what? That's you. And let me tell you what attaches to sinners. Death. 
So Paul says, let me describe this whole thing as the service of death. Yes, it was inscribed in letters on stones. And he admits that there was a glory that, that came with the giving of this law. You know, Mount Sinai, Moses is up there 40 days and 40 nights. When he comes down, his face is shining, reflecting the glory of God he's been exposed to on the mountaintop. And he comes down bearing those two tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. There was a lot of glory attached to the giving of the law. Such that the children of Israel could not gaze intently upon Moses' face because of the glory of his face. But notice what Paul adds about this glory. Which was being set aside. The glory people witnessed on, on Moses' face was there at the very beginning, but it faded. It went away. And Paul is using that as a way to illustrate more broadly what God intended with the whole law the very moment he gave it. God never intended for the Ten Commandments to be the end of his conversation with us. It was the first salvo. It was the first opening of a conversation because before God can talk to us about a Savior, we need to know we have a problem and that's where the law helps. The law opens our hearts up to understand the problem of sin. But there was glory in the giving of it, but it was fading almost immediately. The moment it began, it was already in the process of being set aside, of being nullified, of being put away. Paul is very clearly saying this first covenant, God from the very beginning never intended for it to be the final piece of, of what he's doing. From the very beginning, he was already working on getting rid of it. Setting it aside. And Paul engages here in a, a, a typical Hebrew way of arguing a point. Uh, it's called kal Kal means light. Mer means heavy. So light and heavy. kal and the idea of this argumentation is that if you can establish uh, a truth about a lesser thing, then surely that truth applies in an even greater case. Let me give you an example. I could say this is a Cal Vahomer argument. If every dog deserves to be treated with love and respect, then how much more would a human being be deserving of being treated with uh, love and respect? That, that's a Calvahomer argument. So that's the way he's arguing here. He's comparing the old covenant with the new one. And yes, the old covenant came with this glory and it was impressive, but it was fading away. If this lesser covenant, which all it had to deliver was death, how much, uh, how will the service of the Spirit not be in greater glory? And he contrasts uh, the old covenant is serving up death. The new covenant is serving up the very spirit of God. Compare the two. So if God thought I should attach glory to this one, how much more glory is he going to attach to this other one? If there was glory in the service of condemnation, and that's all the law can give us is condemnation. It identifies us as sinners. It points out where we have failed. 
If there was glory in this service of condemnation, much more does the service of righteousness abound in glory. This covenant does not deliver condemnation. It delivers righteousness. I've talked about this before. We sometimes make that word too technical. When you hear the word righteousness, think right. And right as a quality. Rightness. As opposed to the wrongness of sin in our lives. The, the many things about the way we think and behave and act and, and function that are, uh, that are uh, dysfunctional and wrong. Uh, God is bringing to us in this new covenant a life marked by what is right. What is worthy of uh, approval. He says, in fact, this that has been glorified is, is no longer even considered glorious when we compare it to the new. Remember what I was saying at the beginning when I had that old black and white TV and I saw my first color TV? You know, for years I felt really cheated that I was stuck with that old black and white TV. Why can't I have the color one? That, that's, that's what I want. And, and that's what Paul's saying. When we put these two covenants side by side, yes, this first one was, a, was uh, given in glory. But man, this new one is so much more glorious that now this old one, it's just not good enough. It's just no longer glorious by comparison. And here's another point of comparison when God gave this first covenant he was already from the very moment he gave it he was already in the process of doing away with it it was a placeholder it was there always intended to be replaced and uh, uh, superseded by the covenant he was really bringing so if that one which was being set aside came in glory, what kind of glory do you think should attach to this one that God is not setting aside? The one that's going to remain. This one God is not stopping. This one is going on forever. This is it. You want to know what God's bringing into the world, what he's offering up? This is it. There is no other plan coming after this one. This is the eternal one that he has intended to stretch into eternity. I think as we look at this, yeah, those Judaizers, man, what a thorn in Paul's side. What a, what a drag on the first church. Always in there with their legalism and trying to tell people that they had to keep all the law of Moses and insisting that the men had to be circumcised and that they all had to observe kosher diet and all these backbreaking, burdensome, not just laws from the Old Testament, but also trying to bring in all the interpretations of the rabbis on how you're supposed to go about meticulously observing each of these laws. We think, wow, it's a good thing we're done with that, right? I would say that that brand of faith is still alive and well today. There is a brand of Christian faith, and it's a false Christian faith, but there is a brand of it that is not about Christ, that's about our merit. 
and we come to obsess about the glories of the old. And the heart of our message is not Christ. It's not the spirit that gives life. The heart of our message is the Ten Commandments. You say, surely there's nobody like that. Have you heard anybody talk and bemoan the fact that we no longer have the Ten Commandments in City Hall or in Congress or in the Senate? They've taken God out of because they removed a representation of the Ten Commandments. As though there's anything anybody could do that could evict God from any square inch of creation. It's all His. You can't kick God out of anything. They're forbidding prayer uh, as though there's anything anybody can do that can keep a human being from communicating directly with God. I pray all the time. And uh, our kids in school can pray anytime they want. But there is this version of the Christian faith that obsesses with not Christ, but the morality enshrined in the Ten Commandments. And we talk about Judeo-Christian values as though that's the gospel. Well, Paul said it isn't. The Bible says it isn't. And what we're trying to peddle is not a set of rules for everybody to follow. That is not the gospel. And Christian, this version of faith sometimes contorts itself into grotesque forms so that we find ourselves becoming champions for people like Trump. A man who is unrepentant about adultery. A man who is arrogant and brags about sexual assault. A man who is abrasive and prideful. But he's against abortion. So we can not only vote for him, but we have to defend him like he's some paragon of Christian virtue. You know, there are even Christians who are trying to justify Putin's actions. Like we provoked it somehow. Uh, NATO uh, was right next to him, so he had to invade a neighboring country. And after all, Putin is against homosexuals. And isn't that what the Christian message is all about? No. That's not at all what the Christian message is about. And we do not peddle a version of morality and call it the gospel. That is not the gospel. That is exactly what Paul is confronting in Corinth. That is a ministry of death. That is a service of condemnation. That has nothing to offer us. What's going to change this world? What's going to change what people want to teach our children in school? What's going to change hearts and minds? Christ is the one who does that. We're never going to impose it through legislation or through laws or through uh, uh, armies. We're not going to get it there. And study the church, uh, the, the, the history of the church. Every time the church has tried to use force to implement the kingdom of God, it has been horrendously awful. There is a false version that's based on what we can achieve. 
It's that good old-fashioned American pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps mentality that we will earn our spot before God Almighty through hard work and, and grit and stick-to-itiveness. Paul describes all of that as a service of death and condemnation. Something, yes, glorious that God gave us and that is true and glorious, but God from the very beginning intended to remove that and replace it with something much, much better. Something that can actually fix the problem, not just identify it. What this world needs is not just for us to identify its sin for it. What this world needs is a Savior. That is the new covenant, and it is far more glorious than any version of the old. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we proceed great boldness. And not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel would not gaze intently upon the end of that which was being set aside, but their minds were hardened. For to this very day the same veil remains over the reading of the old covenant, not being removed, for it is only removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. One more contrast between the old approach and the new. First of all, he talks about a hope. A hope we have in this new covenant that allows us to proceed with great boldness. That word I translated there, boldness, could also mean with open and frank speech. And that's very much the way Paul communicates. He doesn't try to uh, sugarcoat things and paint them in any particular way. He just simply and honestly puts forth the, 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 the honest truth of what he has to say. This new covenant frees us from pretense to just honestly and openly live this life in Christ. As opposed to Moses who had to put that veil over his face. Notice what he says, so that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, would not realize that that glory was going away. I feel like there are people today who have that veil and they're so afraid that somebody's going to realize this isn't the way. And they fight so hard for this Christian morality and for these laws and rules and the Ten Commandments and all that they represent. And they fight so hard for this. Because deep down inside they know this is being replaced by something better. And they're afraid to let go of that. And Paul continues to use this idea of the veil and he says that veil was there when, even when the first Israelites were exposed to God's glory veiled in the face of Moses. Uh, even uh, then, their minds were hardened. And the story of Israel is the story of a hard-hearted and minded people who constantly rebelled against God time and time and time again, always wanting to go their own way, never trusting in God and following after him. And he says, it's not a problem just of the Israelites back in Moses' day. To this very day, that veil is still there. 
Every time the Old Covenant is being read, there's this veil they can't see past. In fact, Paul says it can't be removed. There's only one way for that veil to be removed, and only in Christ is there a way to remove that veil. There's a blindness attached. Uh, Anytime we're trying to construct our life uh, based on some version of a merit-based system, and you can do it any way you want. You can use the law of Moses. You can use Islam, or you can use uh, the faith of the Latter-day Saints or the Jehovah's Witnesses. There are a million versions of how you can build this. And there's this sinking fear that drives the zeal in these religious expressions. And that sinking fear is, this doesn't work. Maybe it never would. But the veil is there to keep us from admitting that. It's only removed in Christ. In fact, he says, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. They can't see past it. But whenever one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. I think there are few people who experience the freedom that we find when we come to faith in Christ quite the way that people uh, do when they are coming out of a religious system that they've been very zealously committed to. They've been fighting and struggling and passionate. Paul's a good example of this. He had put everything he had into this. And he had worked so hard at pleasing God and at his religious system. And he had invested so much of his life and blood and sweat and tears in this religious system. And it was tearing him up because it could never give him forgiveness. It could never give him new life. It could never change his heart. And the moment he confronted, or Christ confronted him on the road to Damascus, and he opened his eyes and for the first time gazed upon the glory of Christ. It's like the veil is removed and suddenly you realize all that I was struggling to do, I don't have to. And there's such a freedom for people who come to Christ out of that background, suddenly realizing it's not about me. God's not waiting for me to earn his love. It's already there. He's waiting for me to surrender to it. To stop fighting him and trying to say, wait a minute God, Uh, we can talk when I've figured out how to earn it. God says, give it up. Just receive it. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. There's such freedom in that. Verse 17. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You see, the new covenant is a covenant that frees us, that liberates us. Every other version. Now you can, be, you can be an atheist and you're constructing your moral code and your system of what you think is going to uh, uh, attach worth and value to your living. I mean, the law of Moses is not the only way to try to do this. 
But all we find in that approach is bondage and condemnation and death. We're starting LGBTQ month here, and my heart grieves for people who are caught up in this madness and our young kids who, who are, are being told by their teachers and their peers in school that they have to fabricate some kind of interesting sexual and gender identity for themselves. You can't just say, I'm a boy, and that's, what more do I need to say? You can't say that anymore. You have to come up with something better than that. Don't you see how burdensome that is? to have to fabricate your own worth and, and to do it in such a way that you feel is good enough to at least impress your peers so that they will accept you as valid and not boring and not a homophobe or some other negative term they'll choose to describe you if you don't choose the right language to describe yourself. And then we have Christians trying to peddle a version of the gospel that's all about condemnation and keeping the law. And all of this, every version of it, where we're fabricating our own story through our own efforts, every version, even the one that's based on the law God wrote with his own finger on stone tablets, even that one can only give us condemnation and death. But... When we turn to the Lord, who is spirit, who comes and encounters us, not physically, but in our souls, by his Holy Spirit, uh, when his spirit comes to dwell in us, and he takes up residence in our hearts, all of the sudden, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We're released from these burdens. How do we describe? You might be hearing me and thinking, okay, so you're just saying trust in Jesus and don't worry about the rules and I guess that's it. How, what does that mean? How do we live that life? Is there any chance at any change in my life? Am I stuck this way forever? Am I this sinful, messed up person forever? Are my relationships never going to be healed? Is, am I never going to learn to live a better life? Am I never going to change? Yeah, absolutely. But the way this change happens in the new covenant is completely different. In the old covenant, you just tried to memorize the rules and you kept trying harder to keep them. Harder and harder. That's the old way. How does growth happen in the new way? Paul says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. This is how we grow in Christ. He has removed the veil that hid him from us, and we can now gaze with unveiled face upon the glory of Christ. It's interesting. He says we are beholding this glory of the Lord as in a mirror, and that's odd. What does that mean, that I'm looking at myself? Is it some kind of narcissistic uh, thing where, oh, Paul is saying that the glory of God is actually me. 
Well, no, that's not what Paul's saying. Why the use of the idea of a mirror? Well, it has to do with what he continues to say. There is a process of transformation that happens as we gaze into the glory of who Christ is. We are being transformed from glory into glory. So we perceive his glory, some degree of it, and that changes who we are. And as we continue to gaze, as we continue to focus our hearts and minds and lives on Christ, that glory we have received that has transformed us continues that process of transformation. So it's from one glory into another. Notice, in the old way, that glory was constantly diminishing, constantly being set aside. It was ever uh, less. But in this new covenant... That glory, one stage of glory only leads to the next. And it's additive. It continues. It builds upon itself so that we are constantly in a process of ascending from one level of glory to another. And what is happening? How is it exactly that we are being transformed? We are being transformed into the same image of the glory we are beholding. That's why he talks about the mirror. Because as I'm exposed to the glory of who Christ is and he wears off on me, rubs off on me, his glory begins to penetrate my soul and change me from the inside out and I am beginning to be transformed from one degree of glory into the next. As all of that is happening, I am beginning to look more like Jesus and less like I used to look. So that gazing into that glory, uh, there's something of a mirror uh, going on there as his image is being formed in me. This is from the Spirit of the Lord. This is not from the law. This is not from the Ten Commandments. This is from God himself. Let's ponder, kind of summarize the contrast Paul has raised here between the Old and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant was carved in stone. The New Covenant is carved in hearts of human flesh. The Old Covenant granted us a glory that was going to end. The New Covenant has been granted an eternal glory. The Old Covenant brought condemnation and death. The New Covenant brings righteousness and life The old covenant caused our hearts to be veiled from God's glory. The new covenant removes the veil so that we can gaze unimpeded on the very glory of God. The old covenant imprisons us in blindness. The new covenant gives us freedom. There are two ways to pursue glory. We can try to achieve it through hard work. Discipline, keeping the rules, learning them, memorizing them, and trying ever harder to live up to some standard. There's even a version of the gospel that's presented this way, where Jesus empowers us to try really hard to keep all the rules. 
This path is marked by pride and arrogance, by a celebration of power and achievements, and it's often accompanied by a sense of certainty, unwavering commitment. I know the truth, all the truth, and you don't need to tell me anything because I already know all of it. That, that kind of pride tends to accompany this old covenant approach, but it's a false path, even when we try to build it based on the Bible itself based on God's very commandments. Even then, it can only serve up condemnation and death. This path blinds us so that we can't see the true glory of God. We're too busy looking at all the rules. That's why Jesus came, to provide another path to glory. This is the path of the gospel, and what it requires is that we turn from ourselves to the Lord. We turn from this version I'm trying to construct of myself to Christ and allow him to write the story of who I am. This path at its heart is not uh, based on the Ten Commandments. At its heart, it is based on God himself. And what we are doing in this new path is we are chasing after Jesus. We are pursuing him. We are focusing our hearts and minds and very lives on him. And we cannot get enough of him. And the more we gaze on this glorious Lord, the more we, become, we, we begin, begin to be changed by him. It's a relationship that transforms us. It's a relationship that changes who we are. God makes us free, opens our eyes to see clearly. I want to ask you, do you want to know true glory? Turn your eyes on Jesus. We're going to sing a song. This is your chance to respond to God's word. Let me ask you, if you are fully in the camp of this old approach and you've been trying to write this story of you yourself and build something worthy of yourself, I want to tell you today, don't waste any more of your life trying to do that because it will never work. If that's you this morning, I want to invite you today to take the first step into a whole new eternity. Surrender your story to Jesus. Give your heart to him and ask him to guide you and make him the focus of your heart and life from now on. Maybe you're a Christian and you know Christ, but you've allowed yourself to be misguided and, and diverted from attention on Christ to all the rules and you need to repent of allowing a merit-based system to take over the place in your heart that Christ should take. If that's you this morning, whatever God's put on your heart, even if it's just you want somebody to pray with you about something, whatever's going on in your life, this is your time to respond to God's word. We'll have people here at the front on either side of the stage. Just come up, take their hand, share with them what God's put on your heart, and let them pray with you and encourage you. Come while we sing.